possibilities for greater trust or asking to be delivered. I just encourage you to make it your own. Make it personal. This is the kind of sheet that can fit in any Bible as a way of continuing that prayer of trust. About five weeks ago, our rector prayed with the whole seminary community. He simply prayed the surrender prayer. Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. Perhaps you've heard of this. Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. And it's repeated ten times. Take care of everything. Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. That was five weeks ago. The men are still praying with that. The men are still praying with that. They're still finding things to take care of. Take care of everything. When we prayed it as a house, I could just see flashing before my mind and heart and eyes in my interior sense this situation, that person, this thing faced in the future, this possibility. Just let that wash into the prayer. Yes. Jesus, I surrender myself to you. Take care of everything. It's called the Surrender Novena by Father Dolindo. Surrender Novena. You can find it online. It's somewhere out there. Father Dolindo, the Surrender Novena. But the Novena concludes with that ten part. Just repeat that ten times. Take care of everything. Ten seems to be a threshold, doesn't it? You pray a decade of the rosary... There's a decade of surrender. So how'd your sharing go? Did you do better than the priests? Fantastic. I knew you would. All right. Fantastic. It's this is why it's so encouraging to be with you all. Just to I go back to that uh, comedy film, uh, As Good as It Gets. It's probably one of my favorites, actually. And uh, there's this scene with Helen Hunt. Uh, Jack Nicholson just kind of offended her by calling her dress frumpy and she said compliment now all right and Nicholson's like ah, well you see I got this thing and he just he's obsessive compulsive and just mm, I'm starting to take medication and she's like what does that have to do with me he says uh, you make me want to be a better man which was a great compliment and so when I see and hear and witness the, the beauty of your lay vocation and your prayer. And I'm fascinated with how you listen to God. You make me want to be a better priest. Yeah. Stay right there. Take that. Yes, you do. You make me want to be a better priest. So that's why I'm so grateful to be with you. You all know this image. This is the image of the prodigal son by Rembrandt. I bring it up because the prodigal son, as you know from Luke 15, is a long parable. And there are three chief characters. There's the father, there's the prodigal son, and then there's the older brother. Who is the main character of the parable? Some would say the father. Some would say the prodigal son. That's why it's called the parable of the prodigal son. But it was brought to my attention by Father Swetnam, who is our uh, Jesuit, grew up in Webster Groves, 
learned languages and eventually would teach Greek and biblical theology at the Biblicum for 50 years in Rome. He's back. And we get to have him in our house two weeks out of the month, which is awesome. This Rome guy, Jesuit, he knows everybody, he taught cardinals, it's just, he's, he's the man. And Jesus addresses this parable to those who were complaining. And there's only one character in the whole of the parable who complains. It's the older brother. He said the main character of the parable of the prodigal son is that guy. Right here. The older brother. Who complains that he didn't even ask for a goat. And you give my brother the fatted calf. This is the problem. The older brother never asks. The older brother doesn't ask. How many of us don't ask? I grew up, like I said, on a farm. Fruit was provided, we had an orchard. Vegetables were provided, we had a garden. Meat was provided, we had all the animals. We did all our own butchering. Everything was provided. We just buy things in the store like spices and sugar. Milk provided, all there. It was the 80s, I got hand-me-downs from my cousins. The unspoken thing was, if you had to ask for it, you probably didn't need it. That was the philosophy that I grew up with. If you had to ask for it, you probably don't need it. So I never asked for anything growing up. It was all provided to the extent necessary. And so that seeped into my spiritual life. How many of us have these things that seep into our spiritual life and we don't pay attention to them until there's crisis or trauma or a new occasion. Both we don't ask and we don't receive very well. Especially love and Here's an illustration of it. It's a place of repetition for me. This is my own experience of God's love for me. It's my birthday in February, February 1st. My mother passed away February 23rd, six years ago. So about four weeks before she died, she was really explicit with me about what it was like to give birth to me. So I had this. I had this look. I'm on the phone, right? And she starts to describe, yeah, the night before this happened, and then I had a beer, and <laughs> thought that'd be okay, and then I, my water broke, and got to the hospital, and Sister Blanche took one look at me and said, this one's not coming out naturally. So I went into surgery. This is 1976, and I woke up from surgery, and they laid you down right next to me. And you were perfect. And I'm on the phone. And I rolled my eyes. Like, yeah, mom, okay, sure, great. You would have to say that. And then I gave you to your father, and he just cried. They'd been married since 1970, and so six years they tried. Several miscarriages. So I rolled my eyes and later that day praying my exam and just, why did I roll my eyes at my mom's expression of love? Why would I do that? Because I'm a dull man who won't let himself receive. 
born in love and cherished in love. That's how God wants to love me, and I tend to roll my eyes. It's too tender. It's too good. It's too kind. I don't believe in love. Friends, if you ever want to have a retreat, there's just one book I would recommend today. And I recommend it for everyone who's here. And you've probably seen it. If you haven't seen it, it's simply called I Believe in Love. I Believe in Love. By a priest named Father L.B. E-L-B-E-E, Frenchman. Father Jean L.B. It's a retreat based upon the writings of St. Teresa Lisieux. This is the spiritual classic of our age. I believe in love. Everything I'm saying today is summarized in that book. If you've taken any notes, they're in that book. It's a kind of text that one page, I just put it down. It took me six years to finish it. Just one of those, just keep, keep going back to it. Because God wants to engage us. He wants to pour out love like that. And my heart's too small. It's too hard. That's the problem of this age. We have soft heads and hard hearts. It'd be better to have hard heads and soft hearts. But that's not the case. I want to look at part A of what I gave to you in this fundamental dynamic of relational prayer where you see the A-R-R-R. This will be a little repetition. We'll go a little deeper with it. When I was with you for discernment, we touched on this. I was reminded of this by one of your confreres. said, whenever I hear a bird, I think I have to relate something to God. Tell the Father. Tell the Father. So I was like, oh, we covered that point. That slide's not in here. Okay, we'll go deeper. But I have this way of prayer that I've been really relishing, given to me by a priest, this three-part prayer. God, I do not like, and I can fill in the blank, whatever it is, this thing, this event, this worry, this, I don't like this. You can even say, I don't like myself. Just, there's the honesty. And then the second part of this prayer is, Father, I need you to see this. I need you to see this. That's where we bring our neediness. A lot of people will say, well, don't bring your neediness into relationships. You shouldn't be needy in relationships. With God, be as needy as you want. Bring your neediness. And in the asking, I need you to see this, be bold. There's too much Minnesota asking going on. What do I mean by that? I lived in Minnesota for two years. It's sort of like, hey, um, would you mind doing something about this here? Because, uh, yeah, I'm kind of kind of dying. But uh, you get two weeks, three months. Your time is your time. I get it. You're God. But, uh, hey, whenever you're ready, I'm ready. Go ahead. Minnesota nice. You know, just. But it's actually an expression of deep disbelief and deep discouragement and a darkness that has nothing to do with real prayer. The boldness of asking, I need you to see this in all of its detail. Which latch naturally moves us into, I want to see it the way you do. Because the more I bring need 
and my desire into prayer, the more I enter into His vision, His perspective, God's sight in faith. So repeatedly, this has been transformative in my prayer life. Just, I need you to see this. I can spend a lot, a lot of time there. And in that time, I start to see it the way he does, much differently. I need you to see it, and I want to see it the way you do. This is a shorthand way of saying this A-R-R, R, this praying like a pirate, as some of you have probably heard. This is the dynamic of a relational prayer life, where everything is shared, where there's a conversation, and I bring what's going on, my thoughts, my feelings and desires. A lot of people think of prayer as thinking and ruminating and there's introspection. One of the most, the hardest thing I hear as a spiritual director is, you know, the other day I was thinking to myself. So I asked myself, the people who are in the worst position in the gospel are those who ask themselves something or talk to themselves. Remember the Pharisee? Thank God he thought to himself, I am not like that one, and I'm not like that one. Or the rich man thought to himself, I'm going to build larger bins. This is the self-made aloneness of rumination and introspection. Prayer is relating, noticing what it's like to be with. This is revolutionary. Again, with the Belleville priests, that was, this was the biggest grace right here. They were amazed. Really? Priest, please. One more long quote. This one from Benedict for sure. This is from Space Salvi. This is his, his encyclical on hope. Again, if you want any papal reading, Faith, Hope, and Love, those three encyclicals, I would say John Paul II was the Pope of the pastoral life. Saint Fran- uh, Pope Francis would be a pope of the of the poor. Pope Benedict, I, I think we could say he is the pope of the interior life. No one wrote better about the interior life than Pope Benedict, in my opinion. Only when the future is certain as a positive reality does it become possible to live the present as well. Christianity was not only good news, the communication of something unknown, we could say the Christian message was not only informative, but performative. That means the gospel is not merely a communication of things that can be known. It is one that makes things happen and is life-changing. The one who has hope lives differently. The one who has hope has been granted the gift of a new life. Love has an effect. Hope has an effect. Benedict is all about this concreteness. The gospel brings this about. And so to say this, that the fundamental dynamic of relational prayer is acknowledging, relating, receiving, responding. Acknowledging, relating, receiving, responding. Acknowledging, relating. They're not steps. They're not methods. They're simply descriptive of relationship. Acknowledging, relating, receiving, and responding. And if I'm acknowledging... I'm going to simply be aware. The worst thing that can happen in our spiritual lives is I'm not aware. I'm not paying attention interiorly. I'm not noticing what's happening interiorly. I'm just kind of running around with my head cut off. 
Right? I'm not stopping. I'm not pausing. If I'm not praying 30 minutes a day, this is what I recommend for directees, anybody in ministry. 30 minutes is like a good gauge. If I'm not praying 30 minutes a day, just like we did upstairs, I can't pray all of the day. If I don't pray some of the day, I can't pray all of the day. At the seminary, we have the men praying a holy hour every morning. It's completely life-changing when they start to get into that habit of the holy hour. An hour for a priest is what we need. It's what I need. And so I'm relating everything, thoughts, feelings, desires. I become aware of that and I bring it to God and be with Him. The obstacles to being aware are manifold. There can be too much noise. There can be no silence. There's, or I'm just trying really hard. If there's ever a mantra for your prayer, I don't know if you write this down, you just relax your way into trust. That's my favorite saying for retreats. Relax your way into trust. On the farm we would pray for rain. And the expression was, we're going to pray really hard for rain. It's like, Dad, what does really hard look like? Praying really hard. How do you pray really hard? Relax. Relax your way into trusting. Or maybe I have a woundedness or a suffering and it's just too hard to go there or talk about it. And I just ignore it or suppress it. It doesn't help our awareness. Nope, not going to look at that. Not going to acknowledge that. Stay away. The road to Emmaus is the image for this. It's not a gospel. It's, it's a gospel uh, dynamic. In the road to Emmaus, Jesus draws near to them. They think it's probably a couple, a married couple, which is fun to imagine, walking away from Jerusalem. And Jesus draws near to the couple. And as they're conversing about all the things that had occurred, Jesus comes in with his sneaky questions, his gentle invasiveness. What were you talking about along the way? And they come back with a little bit of, are you the only one who, has, who doesn't know? A little tone. Hear the tone there? Don't get Tony with me. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't say that. Instead, he's excited by that. Whenever we have an attitude or resistance or anger, he actually has the opposite reaction of, man, this is not great. There's going to be something good happening. So if I get a man upset in the seminary, or he gets upset at me, I'm like, awesome, good. Some really good things are going to happen now. There's going to be movement with him. I do tell him that, yeah. I tell him, don't worry if you get angry at me. That's a good sign. That something's going to move. I'm not afraid of their anger. I've developed this whole new skill set. If you have HR issues, I can... I'm amazed. I don't know how it happens, but yeah, this is what happens. So I begin to relate. He asks, what sort of things? It gets him excited. He asks, what sort of things? And they start to tell him in detail. They relate everything. And we share it. Even if it's silly, we think it's unimportant. He already knows, but we need to tell him. Even if we said it a million times, these thoughts, these feelings, these desires, in our heart, as we become aware. And so this exercise of relating moves us out of adolescence in our spiritual life, doesn't it? Who are the worst ones at relating? Hey, how was your day, 15-year-old son? Fine. Huh? That's adolescence. How are things going? Okay. Okay. Want to say more about okay? No. 
What would you do today? Nothing. Uh, okay. How many of us approach God in this way? And notice how many of the evil spirits are mute spirits and deaf spirits. They cause the person to be muted, non-relational, non-communicative. And how often we're reticent to say the whole thing. You remember when Jesus comes off the mountain and there's the Father with the Son and the Father says, cast out this demon. And Jesus is like, all right, bring the boy to me. But first he says, the Father says, well, he grinds his teeth and goes into convulsing. Well, then they bring the Son to Jesus. What's the kid do? Throws himself on the ground, grinds his teeth, foams at the mouth, Looks a little more serious, so Jesus asked, How long has this been going on? And then the dad said, Well, he often tries to throw himself into fire and water and try to kill himself. Oh, okay, well, it's a bigger picture. Yeah, a little fuller honesty. Jesus will wait for that, he'll look for that. Let's skip through a little bit here. These are, these are the typical obstacles to relating. I don't suffer from any of these, so I'm just going to share them with you. Um, as a, as a man, I don't compartmentalize and rationalize. I don't minimize things. I really just, yeah, I keep things pretty squared away. I never ignore anything or I'm never in denial. And um, self-management, yeah, I'm, I don't do that at all. And so coping, and sometimes I hear it subtly in the, in the offer it up. Just offer it up, just offer it up. Well, I can toss something at God but I'm not in relation. <laughs> Offer it up and walk away. No, offering means relating and staying with. Stay with. Stop with the coping. Self-repression is too ugly. Self-protection, it will destroy me if I talk about it. And the shame of the fig leaf. Shame is a way of protecting ourselves. I don't want any of that anymore. I don't want any of that. We have Lexio every Wednesday where we listen to the gospel just like you will here. And for half an hour of silence, the men listen to the gospel. And then they get a chance to share. Any guys can stand up in the next ten minutes and share just a little bit what they heard in the gospel. It was the Samaritan woman and one of the guys stood up and said, Jesus was tired from his journey. I'm tired too. It was in March. Tough time this semester. I want to rest with Jesus and He's not ashamed of my tiredness, and, and now I'm not either. And I asked the guy later what he meant by that tiredness. And he said, I'm just really tired of managing on my own. I'm really tired of being alone and acting out of that aloneness. And he could go even deeper then with his spiritual director. The gospel cuts more surely than any two-edged sword reaching into thoughts and sinews of the heart better than any therapist. The gospel encounters us with our own stuff with Jesus. This is why praying with the gospel every week is life-saving for our house. We would not have a good seminary if we didn't pray the gospel together like that. It's shaped our whole formation. It's changed the whole place. It's a miracle of the Word of God. They start telling him everything that happened, then he starts telling them everything he is about. And they can begin to receive because they've related. 
because they've opened up. Relating is a way of opening up and then receiving more. And prayer and life is about pure receptivity. Be an eagle. Be a sailboat. Don't be a propeller plane. Don't be a, uh, uh, a speedboat. I was at a Steubenville conference and they had a speaker with the people who were coming back for their second time at Steubenville. And he said, you all came to Steubenville and had a great time. Yeah. And you jetted out of here like jet engines flying high. Yeah. And then you crash landed in October with your peers when you went out for that party you said you were going to go to. Yeah. So what do you need to do to stay flying? You need refuel. Refuel midair. Come to the sacraments. Come to prayer and keep refueling. The priest friend next to me just turned to me and said, Blow up the tank. Blow up the tank. Whenever I hear refuel, I hear a, a very dull sense of how God works. Oh, I'll fill up with God and then I'll carry on on my own. No. I'm with God in everything. There's a divinely intelligent Ruha, Holy Spirit, animating the whole world hovering over the whole world. Read Hopkins. And I'm meant to be in communion, not filling up some kind of illusionary tank of self-sufficiency. Please, God, save me from the tank. No more refueling. No more recharging. There's simply being with. And that changes everything. He's always present in our hearts quietly waiting for us to still be still with Him, to hear His voice, abide in His love, and receive power from on high, enabling us to be salt and light. This is how we're meant to live, right here. Wide receivers. That's a wide receiver. This is how we're meant to live in the spiritual life, as a wide receiver. That's Larry Fitzgerald, Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer case you're wondering. But this is what tends to happen in life. If I go out wide receiving and there's a middle linebacker of disappointment or tragedy or that person in my life and what ends up happening to my receptivity, I'm not as trusting. I'm not as available. I'm not as open. I start to go in on myself and get T-Rex arms and I'm not receptive to love. I don't live as a wide receiver anymore. I live defensively. And I forget that God is always on the offensive. God is always on the offensive. To live with God is to live in that offensive. These are obstacles to receiving. I don't suffer from any of these, so I just share them with you. Fear puts us in on ourselves. Disbelief. Lack of, I don't ask. I don't ask anything. I'll have some vows. I made a decision never to do this. I made a decision to always be prepared. I remember praying one time outside near the cemetery and I was praying with Isaiah, I will reveal to you new things and you will not be able to say, I knew that. Okay, Lord, what do you want to reveal to me? And I just kind of drifted my gaze toward the hillside where the kindergarten house was, where I went to kindergarten. And this memory came flashing up from 30 years ago. Do you remember those sheets that would be printed with blue? It was that kind of that machine with a drum. 
mimeograph machine. That's all we had growing up in grade school. They had that smell. It brings me straight back. So the mimeograph, there was a little quiz I did in kindergarten, and the teacher put it on my desk. You know, there's a front and a back to the sheet. You only did the front. What, are you stupid or something? I was five. A vow went right in there. I will never be unprepared. I will always check. I will not miss ever again. You got a sheet with the front and back, just by by the way. Uh, <laughs> this this perfectionism started just seeping in my five-year-old heart, and boy, that's the headwaters of a woundedness there. It was sharp, and I'd never forgiven her. Just kind of carried that around. I just, I just remember her being kind of ugly and mean. It's better now. I think she's married, and I'm happy for her. Mostly. But you can see the economy of that woundedness in this other piece I've given you. And this is just a kind of sage trajectory. Where am I headed? Where am I finding myself day by day? Where do I live? Where are you? Where do you find yourself in this economy? Economy means family plan. The enemy has a family plan. He's the father of lies. What's his family plan? To notice the ways in which we've experienced unlove and notice the ways that we're in pain. I want to be really clear about this. The enemy is a creature, right? A fallen angel, right? He has no access to our interior life because he's a creature. Zero access to our inmost thoughts, feelings, desires. Zero. He has no potency of access. Is that clear? I hope that makes you less afraid. He's a creature, so he has no access to your interior life. This is why the monks, how does he get, seem to like know our weaknesses? How does he, how does he do that? Well, he's been watching people for millennia. He's been watching affect. He can see we have terrible poker faces in our body language, which is why the monks would wear robes and cover themselves entirely. They're the best poker face people in the world. Can't pick up many body language when you've got a robe on. That's why they wore robes. They're hiding, if you will, from the enemy. Desert fathers. So he has no access to your interior life. But he can suggest, uh, based upon what he's observing, the places of pain, the places of insecurity, the places that we're not... Eh, and introduce a fear. That's what he does. That's how he works. Fear gives rise to a desolation. Desolation gives rise to temptation. They were afraid, and then they noticed the fruit was good for food, gaining wisdom and attractive to the eye. That's the temptation. But before that, it was the fear. The enemy fights us with fear and desolating lies. And then there's the vice and then there's death. God has a plan of blessing that's responded to everything on the left. Instead of unlove, he wants to love us. He wants to love the hell out of us. Because everything on the left there is hell. Hellishness. Love the places of unlove. Bring delight where there was pain. Bring thanksgiving where there was fear. Bring consolation where there was desolation. If I want to know if I'm in consolation, just notice how grateful you are. How grateful are you? How much gratitude do you live with? 
Gratitude gives rise to inspiration, inspiration to virtue, virtue to life. And I came that they may have life and have it to the full, abundantly. This is Jesus' strategy. This is His mission. I came that they may have my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This joy of living fully, coming alive. But when I'm in desolation, this is where I feel like I am. You remember the train trestle of desolation. I hear the whistle. Oh my goodness, it's going to be Monday again. I've got a big job, a lot of projects to do. Uh, I don't want to face that. Where do I go from here? Where do I go from here? Panicked question, panicked question. I'm on the train trestle. And that trestle is held up by structures of lies. The two most significant lies in the human heart are I'm alone and there's something wrong with me. I'm isolated and I'm ashamed. Those are the two most significant lies. Every lie rhymes with those two. The, the enemy is not very original. Those are his, that's his one-two punch, left, right. You're alone and there's something wrong with you, which is partially true. I appear to be alone, but I'm with God through the power of my baptism and sacraments. And I appear to be, have something wrong with me because I'm a fallen human being, but I'm a loved sinner. But I forget that first part. And so I stay with the second part. The lie always has enough truth that will swallow it. All right. The image for a lie is a honey-covered turd, if you will. Right. <laughs> Tastes all right, but oh, I don't feel well. That's what the enemy does. All right. And so when I'm panicked on that train trestle of desolation, held up by structures of lies and disbelief, I'm going to feel this way. All right? How much of my life do I feel this way? This is from Stand By Me. I was the fat kid (laughs) growing up. But I don't have to live that misery. I don't have to live it. You want to be well? Jesus asked the man by the pool. Do you want to be well? And he starts complaining. Classic. And then Jesus just makes him well. When I'm like that, I think the enemy is just, just a big bully. He's really harsh. He's so hard to defeat. He's, but here's the other truth about the enemy. This is the spiritual combat. He not only doesn't have access interiorly, he fights like a cowardly weasel. He fights like a cowardly... He looks for the place where you're weak. How cowardly is that? If I have a cut on my toe and I go into brackish waters, where am I going to get an infection? On my knee? No, it's going to be in my toe. He looks for the places of woundedness so he can bring his infection, bring his virus. That's how he fights. So he's not really like this. That's how I imagine him. If the enemy looked like this, I'd be ready to fight. I'd be, I'd be wanting to do something about it. But the enemy often doesn't like, act like this. I'm going to share with you just a a very brief spiritual wisdom that gets very, uh, what shall I say, misconstrued from Ignatius. He says this. If if there's an enemy coming at me and I make a strong front and be courageous, he runs away 
because he fights like a cowardly weasel. If, but the enemy doesn't act like this guy. The enemy doesn't look like that. He says the enemy will often look like this. And many people think, wow, is Ignatius a chauvinist? Is he a, what kind of a, kind of male superiority thing is he putting out there? What he's putting out is, if this woman walked into the room, I am not going to look like that. I'm going to be like, oh, hey, nice to meet you, Rosalinda Celentano. That's her name, Rosalinda Celentano. She's an Italian supermodel, all right? If an Italian supermodel came into the room, I would not be ready to fight. I just wouldn't. That's unnatural. Not only is it unnatural, that's not chivalrous. In fact, that's completely ridiculous. Which is why he says the enemy fights like a woman. Because it's not natural for that to happen. That, that shouldn't... I, I'm not going to fight a woman. I just, I won't. Now, if they put me in the center of a ring and I'm supposed to, all right, well... We'll see what happens. But this is, it would not be a fun time for me. I just don't want to do that. He covers himself with things that are attractive and fantasies. And so to put up a bold front isn't really natural for us. It takes a real deliberate decision. The reason I have her face here is because she doesn't look like him. She looks like Rosalinda. And what they did with Rosalinda is they shaved off her eyebrows. And she's the actress that played Satan. Isn't that something? That's creepy. It's really creepy. And if you ever want to see a perfect cinematic betray, uh, portrayal of an attack of the enemy going after the mission and identity and relationship of Jesus, it's in this film. Rosalinda shows up, eyebrow shaved off, and says to Jesus... What she say? No man can carry this burden, I tell you. It's too heavy. Saving souls is too costly. No one, ever, no, never. Negative, harassing, and attacking his mission. What's Jesus' response to that? Does he go square away with the enemy? No. His bold front is to go to the Father. All the energy of that attack takes him to the Father. And he prays. He turns to his father even more. So the more the enemy attacks, the more he turns to God. The more I'm feeling sort of desolate, the more I go to God. The energy of that attack becomes the energy of my prayer. Who is your father? Who are you? Going after his identity and his relationship. And then what does he do again? Your will be done. Turns to his father. Turns to his father. This is, this is a perfect image of the interior life as we're often going to be living it. And so he starts to pray the way we're meant to pray, in depth and in particular, in the concrete, and trusting ourselves, combating the lies with real petitions. All right? All right, I'm going to close it up here very quickly. Just to say this about priests in confessions. This is a, uh, a season of penance. Uh, I help the men in their... Uh, I do a practicum on spiritual direction. I do a practicum on saying Mass. And I do a practicum on hearing confessions. 
So I do the practical stuff with the men. And I tell the men the sins are boring. Nobody, nobody really listens to the sins. What a priest is listening for in the confessional is the pain. What gave rise to the fear? What gave rise? Because you see the diagram. What, what started it all was the pain and the unlove. And I want the penance to address that unlove. I want the penance to address the lie that causes the fear, the lie that causes the pain. And so I don't just do hard things during Lent. I do things in Lent that allow me to be more receptive to love. So where do we go from here? What will allow me to be more receptive to love in my daily life? That's where you go from here. And day by day, my receptivity to love will move me into the mission field in ways that I've never quite asked for or imagined, but I can because I'm with Him. Those are your next steps. What will allow me to receive love more fully and gratefully and wonderfully that I may come alive with faith, hope, and love you want an examine that's real quick and easy have I been loved and have I loved note it every day and you'll see the work our Lord desires for you how does that sound to you okay two o'clock 40 minutes friends it's been wonderful being with you I've got to say mass to the nearby parish I hope there's a next time God bless you all